My name is Ify, and I am here with my lovely co-hosts. They're not just lovely, they're also smart and intelligent and opinionated women. Come on! We have all all gathered here once again for another episode. (laughs) And we have in our midst a very (laughs) special guest. But before she tells us who she is and we introduce her, I'll let everybody else um, introduce themselves. Hey everyone, it's Amayo. Hi, it's Ife. Hey guys, this is Onyeka, aka Yeka O. Awesome. And we have someone I consider to be a very dear friend. Um, friend, will you introduce yourself to our listeners so that they may know the grace? And you know what? Let me not even do the most. Just go ahead. <laughs> Just go ahead. And- <laughs> I'm Clarice Belasia Saidi. Call me Belasia. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yes. Like <laughs> oh, good to so, meet you guys. We're so happy to have you, and thanks for bearing with us um, through our technological difficulties. Um, so, Belasia is a writer who was born and raised in Côte d'Ivoire. And she received her MFA from the University of Michigan's Helen Zell Writers Program. And she has received so many writers' residencies and fellowships and awards. And she's currently, well, I feel like when this episode comes out, her geographical location will change. Um, but she is, but I think it's fair to say she's based in Toronto, Canada. So, Balasia, I think, remind me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but your mom is, your mom was Rwandan and your dad from DRC? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay, okay. So, I know Balasia through a mutual friend and I will spare you guys the details, but let's just say it was love at first sight, <laughs> um, or at or at second sight. But Belasia is just a really great person. She is a talented writer. She's also um, really smart and opinionated and very caring and kind. And so, when I was thinking about somebody to bring on to the show to talk about literature to talk about representation to talk about empathy um in media and in art she is somebody that i thought of and i'd been wanting her to be on the podcast for a while so thanks for joining us belisha oh my goodness my pleasure i love this podcast so i can't even believe this is happening (laughs) we're so happy to have you so we just want to I mean, I've already given some, the audience, like, some introduction, but I guess I just wanted to ground everybody in knowing who you are as a full, I mean, there's only so much we can know into your, who you are as a person, but just giving us some background on your upbringing and where you're from, not just in terms of, like, the name of the country, but just, like, an understanding of where you come from. Yeah, I mean, it's like you mentioned, I'm born and raised in Cote d'Ivoire, you know, so I grew up speaking French mostly at home and at school, uh, went to French and Ivorian schools. And my mom 
who was Rwandan also considered herself to be Ugandan because she ended up being a Ugandan national and really identified with Uganda. So mm. for mm. my entire life, we've had Ugandan passports. I have yet to get to UG myself where I'm standing, <laughs> but I've, I'm a Ugandan on paper, right? Um, and my dad was from Congo, so born in Lubumbashi. And yeah, lived in DRC coming up, but then also went to school in the States. My mom went to school in the UK and they met in Ivory Coast. That's how like us mm. kids are born and raised in Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of identity forming, that's like the, you know. <laughs> yeah. And how long were you, how long were you in Cote d'Ivoire for? I was there straight through high school, really. I think there was one year. Um, where we were in Massachusetts. That's where I learned English around fifth grade, mm-hmm. fourth, fifth grade. Um, before that, I was really a francophone. My mom was a translator, so she spoke a lot of languages. And, you know, English would pop up at home. But really, um, even though she was primarily an Anglophone um, and she would speak Kinyaranda as well, at home we spoke French because we were in a French-speaking country. Mm-hmm. And then we went to... Massachusetts for one year while my dad got a degree done and suddenly we came back to Ivory Coast very Anglo like very mm. Anglo as is the case with a lot of kids you know when you're learning a language so yeah they my parents figured ah here's an opportunity to switch to an English school and let them beef up the English and keep the French at home as well mm-hmm. and would and do you consider like French to be like, do you dream in French? Is that like your first language? Is that the language that you are most comfortable with? And It's it's my first language. Yes, I'm very comfortable speaking French and I have a very romantic attachment to it because mm. it makes mm. me think of home mm. and it makes me mm. think of family and it makes me think of, and French is associated to so many things, positive yeah. and negative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I, since I got to school in high school and in university in English, mm-hmm. I would almost argue that my English is stronger at this point because you're learning your more robust vocabulary mm-hmm. in secondary school and university. So I have a very strong French foundation, but you know, I'm a I'm an English writing scholar. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. yeah. And it's having been. Thing. Sorry, I was just saying, like, do you dream in French? That was just. Oh yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think I do. Honestly, I dream in both, and uh, I do, I do, but very often in English, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so much. I have, you know, maybe it's compartmentalization or something, but I have so many people in my life who speak both, so it's kind of it's meshed together. And then the people in my life, I will say even romantic life, like who are more francophone half the time, like those people, if they appear in my life, friends, fa- family, whatever, then often we're speaking in French. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And is there something about Côte d'Ivoire that is unique to the country that you can share with us or just... Mm. Yeah, I, I love <laughs> I love Côte d'Ivoire, but it's clearly like it's home, so it's a bias. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think I don't know. Ivorians are just very warm and funny, 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 funny people. You know, funny mm-hmm. is important. Um, and growing up, you know, in our in our anthem, I say "our," but you know, people might argue <laughs> my Ivorianness. Mm-hmm. In our n- national anthem, like one of the lines that stands out is like. 
paid in hospitalité, which means country of hospitality. Mm. And that, that always meant a lot to me. I think to a lot of people, whether they were Ivorian born or transplants or, you know, people who were, you know, Ivorian generations long and keen on a multicultural kind of safe haven on the continent. So really that to me was the strength of Ivory Coast in the 80s and 90s, especially that multicultural fabric, which is already so ingrained in a lot of our nations. Like we're, we have nations within our nations. So mm. it's important to aim for that, I think. Mm. Wait, sorry, when you say nations within our nations, what, sorry, what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I kind of am referencing these, I'm referring to borders that are not the ones we naturally would have, right? Like mm-hmm. colonial borders. So mm-hmm. the word nation might even be I complicated, see. but different states within our nations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. also we have nations that are, or, you know, cultures or ethnic groups that are stranded away from our technical borders, but that mm-hmm. we feel an affinity to. So you see that affinity in Ivory Coast, definitely with Ghana. It feels mm-hmm. like Sometimes Ghana is like an English answer to our French, you know, nationality. Like there's a lot that crosses over hmm. um, in terms of like, you know, language, ethnicity. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like that, that multiplicity is kind of part of the African story in a lot hmm. of ways. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's unique to Ivory Coast, but it's what made Ivory Coast unique to me. Mm. And it's like, for me, thinking back to like my knowledge of Ivory Coast, I feel like for as a child, I just knew that Ivory Coast, like uh, Cote d'Ivoire had like really great soccer players. I mm-hmm, think that was same. like, <laughs> growing up, it's like, yeah, the Cote d'Ivoire team. We did love, yeah, yeah, we do, we still do, yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there was just a lot of um, development. It was definitely a seat for development for a long time. That's how my parents met. They worked at the African Development Bank, which mm. brought people across the continent, right? And mm. even the world to, you know, to work on development across the continent. So it felt like there were a lot of, there was a lot of progress in that regard in the 80s and 90s, especially. Um, yeah, so you, mm. it was kind of part and parcel. I think with the first president we had, it was kind of his, his motive you know, operandi. Mm. And so in the in, in my introduction for you, I mentioned that you got your MFA from the University of Michigan. And personally, I know that your path to the MFA program at University of Michigan and your path to writing wasn't a straightforward path. Do you mind sharing that with? No, I don't. I mean, it just, I don't know if a lot of people could probably relate, but for me, mm-hmm. In undergrad, I went to undergrad in D.C. I really wanted to be in New York, actually, but ended up in D.C. um, Mm. in a school that was very focused on international development, um, Mm. economics, law. My parents came from that kind of way of thinking as well. So for a long time, I didn't give myself permission to consider literature as a way to, you know, like to go forward. Mm. So I would declare almost like on a semester basis i would declare a major that i thought would impress maybe my family or would make mm-hmm. sense you know or would you know for what mm-hmm. some, i don't know some upwardly mobile immigrant girl should do mm-hmm. and 
And then eventually year two or three, around my junior year, we got Canadian citizenship. So as a family, we were all over the place. We had to fly into Canada. And obviously I transferred because I wouldn't have to be an international student, you know, seeking aid, scholarship, whatever. I couldn't mm. do it. I could just finish my school at a reasonable kind of rate. Mm. And then in Canada, when I got there, you know, my admissions kind of counselor asked me what my major was. And I think I said psychology and law or something like that. Like whatever my last lie was. (laughs) (laughs) And she looked at my transcript and she's like, but there's no way, like all you do is take literature and writing courses. (laughs) If you want to be, you know, like a psych major, you're going to be starting like a freshman. And real talk, that's when I had this wake-up call because I'm very good at denial. Wow. Wake-up call where I was like, oh, my gosh, I've been telling people what they want to hear, but I've been secretly doing what I love, which is reading and writing. Wow. That gave me chills. (laughs) Yeah. So I had to announce to my parents. I was like, by the way, I'm a literature major. (laughs) (laughs) What else is happening? And... (laughs) My mom wasn't entirely surprised. My dad was like, mm, why? <laughs> mm. But, you know, in the end, they came around and they were supportive. But it definitely wasn't practically minded, where yeah. you know, the way we were raised to think. Uh, even my older brother, whom I love, and who's like a second father almost, was like, well, can you do like journalism? Or like, how do you, you know, how can you hedge against yeah. like the, the, the glob that is literature? Like, what is literature? How is that going mm. to be? Thing you can base your life on so I even mm. almost took detours towards journalism but I really love fiction and mm. it was important mm. to me to you know at the time my thought was just waste your bachelor's on on this and then for your master's you will circle back to something practical and mm. fortunately I didn't have to mm. yeah but I, I still yeah I still ended up in finance at some point in Toronto what? To make ends, yeah, to make ends. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just working, you know. That's and real, just, yeah. Yeah, that bilingualism was helpful because, you know, Canada is bilingual, but not mm-hmm. really consistently. So there's a lot of service and kind of government-related jobs where there's a requirement to hire very strong bilingual, you know, staff. And in mm-hmm. finance, that's the case. Like, that's the, that's the law. So my bilingualism trumped my lack of financial degrees and I was able to just learn on the go, you know, Mm. and I ended up in in mutual funds. Yeah. So that's it. And and, and Michigan kind of, Michigan saved me. Michigan gave me a fully funded ride to just take three years and give it another shot. And not as someone who reads literature, but someone who's trying to create literature. Mm. Mm. And what has writing as a practice like how has that how has that been for you and what has surprised you about you know writing and creating literature mm-hmm. yeah I think just when I was in undergrad I had taken one writing workshop and I didn't get any mentorship you know I didn't get a lot of you know encouragement let's put it that way mentorship mm-hmm. is kind of a plus it's almost a privilege but encouragement should kind of be part of the game and mm-hmm. I didn't really get that. I got a teacher who essentially told me, oh, in no uncertain terms, that I'm a great reader, but not a good writer. And mm-hmm. I think a, a big part of that was that he hadn't read stories like mine. Mm-hmm. They were 
that you felt my work was sentimental, which we now understand just means too female, not male mm. enough. Mm. Um, and so he was dissuading me from going down a path that was rightfully mm-hmm. mine. Enemies. If I wanted it. Mm. Enemies of progress. As right. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I believed, I was like 17 in undergrad, you know, I was a baby. I was like, okay, you know, so I'm a reader. I'm going to just read. So mm. a lot of what has been surprising to me, sadly, is understanding that people want to read me. Mm. And, mm. Yeah, man. Hmm. Yeah, that people want to hear our stories. That's yeah. Talks me. Uh, that people see what I'm trying to do, even if it's still aspirational and it's not finished. Uh, my project mm-hmm. is big. It's not finished. Every measure of support that I've gotten is like this very counter, you know, effort versus what I, what my past was, which was don't do this. And mm-hmm. now it's now it's go forward, go forward, go forward. So yes. that's been amazing. Hmm. Yeah, because right now you're working on your first novel. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So let us know when Ooh. it's ready so we can <laughs> we can we can support. I know. It. NYC Book Club. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And so on the you were a guest on We're Here Love on um, like a a podcast and on that podcast I and we'll put a link to it in the show notes but you had mentioned that like writing for you is a way of contemplating the world and like being a better observer of the world and describing the world and so one thing a question I had immediately when I heard you say that is what are you currently focused on describing and like what are you currently paying attention to right now, now? yeah yeah I think it's like it's a myriad of things, but it turns out to be very related things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Marlon James who said he writes about what he, I think he said, I, I write about three things, what what I love, what I hate, and what I'm deeply confi- conflicted about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very accurate representation of what I end up kind of focused on and paying attention to. Yeah. So even the, the very things that make your podcast relevant in my life you know like you know how do we combat cliches how do we how does identity formation look different from for everybody Mm. um how do we get away from othering especially Mm. superiority based othering Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i feel we all do and can fall prey to Mm -hmm. um things like that as far as being an african person as far as being you know, from a background that's multilingual, multicultural, multi-faith, you know, mm-hmm. um, the ways that we can be ourselves, even when we have split selves, mm-hmm. um, all these things feel important to me. And sometimes they fall in the category of, oh, I love this about us or about me or about people mm-hmm. I know. And sometimes it falls into, I hate this about us or the people mm-hmm. I know or myself. Mm-hmm. And very, very often, it's like I'm deeply conflicted. So I'm trying to examine it in fiction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's too general. I can go. No, no, no. (laughs) No, it's great. I'm just just giving room for other questions that might pop up. Um, Um, I have a question. um, And this is kind of going back to what you mentioned a little bit earlier. um, How one 
what one person says can affect your life for such a long time, whether it's mm. a positive or a negative comment and how oftentimes the negative comments like linger longer than even the positives. And so I'm curious on a practical level, because I feel like at some point, you know, for everyone, whether it's those of us on the podcast right now, those listening, where it's like someone has said something, but like your current position is undoing what it is that you've, has, you've been told or you've heard about yourself. Like, what are the practical things that you've done to like combat that negative comment that you heard? Like, because it's, it's obviously a process, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also sometimes you'll hear something negative on two levels there's what the person is saying and what they mean you know Mm. or there's there's what they mean and what you can actually take away from it you know i think Mm. in in work in a workshop model which is typical for writing circles and degrees it's it's really important to hear the negative but not run with it like don't not to get carried away but also Mm. not to dismiss it sometimes Mm. you can find power in critique Mm -hmm. you know that power can be saying, mm, I, I very strongly do not agree. And thank you for telling me what I needed to know about how strongly I disagree with that opinion. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you can take that negative in a moment, something feels very harmful. And later you can use that and turn it into a strength. So even like this idea of sentimentality or over sentimentality, that was such a negative at the time, especially with, you know, less discourse about what, you know, white male voices are doing to the world in literature. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like, this is absolutely my strength. My Uh strength are my women characters. My strength is emotional veracity, understanding psychology, you know, Mm -hmm. so you couldn't wield that as a power. So you turned it into a negative and I can now wield it as a tool and a power. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think really the key thing is time that time can look like just stepping away from negativity. That time can be maturity and development, Mm self-development. It can be journaling and looking back at those notes and thinking, wow, I felt so strongly and reactionary about this thing. And really now, if I look back at that journal entry, it's like I was really getting carried away. I don't, it doesn't have to have that much power. Mm-hmm. Um, I think time for sure is to me is usually the element that I have to work with instead of against. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, uh, this is Ife, can you tell me more about your journaling practice? How does that, I just picked mm-hmm. up on the fact that you journal, how does that like inform your writing or help with your writing or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. how sure. does that, yeah. Um, I have, so my journal practice is not super ancient, but it's very, very helpful. Um, <laughs> I have kind of two basic journals. One is a gratitude journal. Um, it just kind of feels very much like written prayer, you know, just mm-hmm. saying really, you know, like ink on paper, what I have to be grateful for. Because otherwise, you know, we get so embattled that it's easy to forget what's happening for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that journal is the one I try and do more often. And then I have another journal that's more of I want, I don't want. So mm-hmm. that's, again, I've talked about denial. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. maybe a personality trait for me, but I can really sometimes, you know, work against myself and my objectives and my goals and mm-hmm. get into old patterns, get into uh... bad habits or, you know, focus on something that's my minor instead of major this also speaks to anxiety and like trying to 
have as strong a mental wellness as I can. So my I don't want, I want journal is a way to remind myself of more kind of lofty goals, pers- you know, the person I want to be, the actions I want to take, what I want, you know, what I want to represent, um, and then remind myself what I don't want. Mm. Those, are, those two things speak to as much as to who I want to be as to the writer I want to be. Wow. That's, that's great. And you've just, you know, motivated me and inspired me to continue with my... So, <laughs> I continue is a very loose, <laughs> loose word. Speak your um, truth, boo. <laughs> many, many years ago, I read this book. Um, uh, if it were, do you remember this book? This A Thousand Reasons Split. or something by Anne Voskamp. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it just took me to like place. a lifetime ago. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, but there's this book about like, you know, gratitude and joy and how much, you know, the more you give things, the more joyful you feel. And I, I was, I was writing gratitude stuff, but life got in the way and it, it just, I just never stopped with it, but mm. it inspired me to do that and expand to the what I want, what I don't want. That's, that's real. It's yeah. real to like distill it to, okay, what is the purpose of this journal? Hmm. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm chronically my life. You know, like, right. what exactly am I trying to achieve with this? So, yeah, mm. thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, recently I've been, I just started reading this book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And one of the tasks, it's like a 12 week course book. And, one of the tasks is to write three pages every day, like stream of consciousness, longhand. Um, and I've been doing it for a few weeks now. And granted, it sometimes it feels like I'm telling the story of my life, like, woe is me. But it's so interesting how <laughs> at the end of, or like in writing, it literally becomes clear what it is that I want. Like as mm. I'm, as like it's almost like as I'm processing it, the answer I see the answer, and I'm like, oh my god, why am I beating around the bush? This is the answer right here. Mm. <laughs> so sometimes it's funny how like mm. even mm. in just writing about how you're feeling and how like I don't know. Sometimes in writing you're processing, and then the answer suddenly rises to the surface. It's almost like the writing helps you declutter and get to the root of the matter but yeah but anyways something else I was thinking Belasia is like for you as a writer I was wondering about your process of approaching this line of translating your story or the stories you want to tell versus pandering and as I was thinking about that some other things came up for me Sorry, which is I've been explain what pandering is for our listeners <laughs> So, how do I explain pandering? The way I... I don't want to say the way I see it because there is a, there's a dictionary definition of pandering. So, for our listeners out there, the few seconds I'm taking is to give you a dictionary answer. Mm, ah, there's something that's... I see something about a pimp, but that's not... <laughs> It's like that's not the campaign we were talking about. <laughs> not here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was like, while well, well, while you find the dictionary, um, I was going to like give what I what I think 
Mm-hmm. The definition of pandering is, as I understand it to be, is surface level surface level concern. So you're not you're just only concerned about the optics. You're not really concerned. You know, you just want to look like you're concerned. Um, you just want to is ojuaye as they mm. say it in in Yoruba. You just want to be seen as doing the right thing, uh, speaking to the right concerns, mm. um, but you're not actually doing the work. Hmm. Yeah, that gets at it. Yeah, sorry. The dictionary says to gratify or indulge, which seeing that in literature can translate to indulging somebody's, uh, like, I don't know, like, yeah, that, like, for, um, I mean, I can, yeah, yeah. But, Belagia, feel free to go ahead. No, that's really it. For me, pandering in literature or in the arts, um, even just in general with like international relations, it's it's kind of like you're you're trying to gratify someone or satisfy someone, you know, and very external of yourself, you know. So mm-hmm. it's almost like you're you're trying to meet someone's expectations mm-hmm. without considering that those expectations may be false, erroneous, problematic that kind of thing and mm. in in art and literature it's very important at least in the in the sense of african you know literature that we keep a, a lookout for that um mm-hmm. even the very name of this podcast like not your african cliche is basically an you know an a you're an attempt to de-panther or not panther you're mm-hmm. trying to say we're not going to give you the easy simple mm-hmm. on the surface definition what mm. it is to be a thing, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether that thing be African woman, you know, whatever. That's mm-hmm. my understanding. And sometimes in because writing is not just this Aww. thing you get to do on your <laughs> on your pre- on your precious time, because what you write, even if you want to consider it to be art, one day has to turn into a product that somebody can take and sell. Mm-hmm. It, between those two things happens, you know, there, there's a process and like you use the word translation. There's a process where you have to try and really remember what you're doing, who you are, um, so that you don't change your product or even like change yourself, change your depictions, change your characters, change your plot, change yeah. your, you know, all these things in order to have a marketable and palatable mm-hmm. product oh. at the end of the day. Mm. Right? So it's yeah. even like that, that piece that was written sometime back, we all read it about like how not to write or how to write about Africa or how not to yes. write about yeah. Africa. Yeah. perfect yeah. like entering manifesto. Like this is what happens when we're not careful. Mm. You know? And then there's yeah. a, and then there's a counter argument um, which is when you're so busy trying not to pander that you do a disjustice to the story you really are <laughs> uh-huh. trying to tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where, like, I love that Binyavanga Wanena piece, like how to write about Africa, because it's true. And we have to stay away from these cliches, these, you know, but yeah. at the same time, we have to be careful because we don't give ourselves permission to write and not just to write, but to write the specific stories we feel compelled to write. So mm-hmm. what we hate as much as what we love, those things coexist. So if I want to write about, you know, to take our day, the start of this conversation, if I want to write about this internet that's flaking on me, 
or the power mm-hmm. has gone down, I get to mm-hmm. do that because mm-hmm. it's my reality. I'll have the person, you know, the, the pro-African, pan-African who will frown at me and say, oh, must you depict our problems? Mm-hmm. But yeah. if, I, if I don't, then I'm pandering to them. Mm-hmm. Right? And if I only do that, I'm pandering to this Western gaze that expects me to write the problematic African novel. Yeah. And like the sad thing, the sad thing or the um, frustrating thing about like discussion or like our reality is that it always feels reactionary to, you know, like other people, you know, we were not centered or like it's because you, you have to weigh, oh, um, how is my work going to be received by like, you know, the Western world, like it's, it, do you understand? We can't just be, you know, it's always, there's so many things to weigh. There's so many, how, you know, how, how am I, not, how, how am I, how will I make sure not to, to fall into stereotypes or how, yeah, it's just like sad and it makes me angry that that's something we have to consider. And, you know, white, white make, I just be like, well, you know, I am the default of the world. Take me as I am. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things I had to learn in my first year of grad school to kind of shrug off some of the representational pressure because mm. this idea that, you know, especially since I'm, I consider myself Ivorian, you know, Rwandese, Congolese, all these things, but to any of these nations that I hail as home, any of them can turn around and say, mm, not really, asterisks. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, not really. Oh, but were you raised here? Oh, but you know, but do you know our language? Oh, mm. but what tribe is your tribe? Oh, right. but you've never even been in this country, and yet I, you know, I, I'm so proud of my heritage and my identity. So, no matter what I do, I will not please everybody. Mm-hmm. So, at the end, I can turn inward and really just focus on pleasing me and writing the story that I would want to read, and that's. Mm very freeing but it's not it's not an organic easy thing to do because yeah. constantly i want i want a strong loving african readership oh. it's very a big part of what i want because i am i come from that but i know that in writing about politics or gender dynamics or gender meaning like family marital politics any of these things where i want to grapple with things I know I'm going to have someone saying, oh, my gosh, here's this representation. And again, being a Francophone who's now an Anglophone, I'm going to write this Ivorian novel in French. Mm. You know, this Ivorian-based novel, Ivory Coast-based novel in French. How do I not immediately disqualify myself from being, you know what I mean, authentic? That word comes up a lot when it comes Mm. to it. Um, and, and yet, I stand here and I tell you, I'm born and raised this way. I can name my streets. I can tell you this or that, but you won't give me that that honor, mm. right? Unless I do it your way. So, in the end, I learned to do it just my way. Hmm. Amen. Sorry, if if anyone, I didn't mean to interrupt your initial question. I'm just wondering if Palisa oh, answered yeah. while she was describing. Like pander, 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 yeah, pandering. I think that's really the gist mm-hmm. of it. But it's it's true okay. that it's yeah, it's it's difficult because there's different types of it. And I know for mm-hmm. sure, you know, as African creatives, we know what we're trying to do. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'll even give a short story just to again denial is the theme here. Like Malaysia is really good at <laughs> like I started writing this novel. 
I won't go into much, but it's set in 1997-8. And one character, she's Nigerian, by the way, is moving hey. from... She's moving from Lagos to marry this Ivorian guy. So most of the book takes place. African love. Yes, African (laughs) love. Again, you know my themes: multilingual, multicultural, multinational. That's the home I grew up in. You know, so it's I took this example, and she's leaving Niger in '98, going to Ivory Coast. This country is new to her. The language is new to her, and I was very much enamored with that as the setup of the novel. Like, how do they make this marriage work? How do they communicate better or worse over Mm -hmm. time? How is she not othered? Or how is she othered in this country that claims to be hospitable, Mm. but has its pits and falls? And I was very determined not to write a political novel. And yet, Mm -hmm. when I started to plot the timeline of this book that, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so I was really happy to write into that time, I realized that the climax, the family, personal, interpersonal climax was coinciding with our first coup in December 99. So how do I honestly write a story about a marriage falling apart and ignore a a national crisis? Right, right. Mm -hmm. It's like I had set myself up to have (laughs) to deal with it. But I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I, didn't, I didn't want to admit that I wanted to do that. I also didn't want to admit to it because it's ambitious. It's more ambitious than what I originally planned to do, which was to write a love story. And suddenly I was like, oh, but I know my parents, you know, my Rwanda, Congo, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of strife. Mm-hmm. So I'm informed by that. I've, the Ivorian, you know, complexity, that, that national promise of hospitality that then kind of turned into xenophobia in the late 90s, I know that. Mm-hmm. So how do I completely ignore this knowledge I have mm-hmm. and just focus on love because mm-hmm. I have to be anti-political to be a, a, an artist today, an African artist today? It's not really fair. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to come around and say, okay, if you're going to do it, do it right. But you know, just know there will be people who are like, nope, not reading another book where there's this question and uh, other people who will be like we're still grappling with this so i'm gonna read this i want to read it right like right yeah now. yeah like, like give it put it in my veins right now <laughs> <laughs> but, i'm kind of i'm kind of curious i mean I, I you don't have to go into too much depth but how and well you're still writing this book but how has the process been for you like I don't know, starting this project from scratch, you know, doing the research for the political aspect of it. Um, you said it's in French, right? So, you know, expanding your vocabulary as well. Um, just, yeah, it's, just... a, it's in English, sorry. It's oh, in it's English. in English, okay. I, but it I did have to expand my vocabulary because I had to consider, you know, telling the story from different points of views, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, and getting to know people who are different from me, who I think I know, but I don't want to assume. So I had to mm-hmm. insert different identities. Yeah, corners, yeah. And I, I was a teenager in the 90s. And so I had my reality relatively sheltered, you know, by parents who tried very hard to protect us. So I had to do homework to understand characters who would be in their 30s in the mm-hmm. 90s. 
there, honestly, there's, it's incredible how many things the character will inform you on. I, I write very character-based fiction, so I want a character to, you know, confront somebody and they don't. <laughs> I keep writing, <laughs> writing, and they don't. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's not that's not, that's your personality. You would confront them. She's not trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Why would you not do that? Yeah, and then you, learn, you lean into research that's based on this person that doesn't quite exist, but you know exists. And you also look into, are there cultural reasons that she is okaying something you wouldn't okay? Or that mm. she's more, you know, combative than you would be or less? That's part of the psychology I'm interested in because I don't want to write people who are exactly like me. Yeah. Yeah. That's my next question. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you work through that to, to make sure that your characters are characters that stand on their own and aren't necessarily a, you know, a reflection of you? Because you know, to your point of you, how you behave in a scenario versus how that character is, is shaping up to behave, how do you delineate? Like, how do you, you know, like, yeah, it, in my own head, I'm like, you are my character, and you do what I want. <laughs> you know, like you are my creation, and you will do as you're told. So, how do you have the, I don't know, yeah, yeah. the delineation? You said Detachment. it, yeah. Yes, yes. I think other writers will tell you differently that they're able to instruct their characters to do this or do that, but that there's a lot of writers who that's not how it goes. I think the more time you spend with a character on the page, you know, free writing, just listening to how they talk to others, getting into their, you, you're just surprised. A, a line will come up. And obviously it's something in a, in a very inner chamber of yourself mm-hmm. or something you heard someone say or mm-hmm. something that you are just so opposed to. And suddenly it's what this character believes in. And you try and follow it. At the beginning, I would do a lot of, this is going to sound corny, but I would do a lot of interviews. So I would interview my character. <laughs> it's a teacher who told me to do that. I would sit down mm. and ask my character, you know, what's your birthday? You know, do, do you believe in monogamy? Do you this? Do you that? And I asked them questions. And then when I had written more into the book, I would have the character interview me. So I would mm. ask, I would give them the chance to say, why would I do that? Mm. Or to mm. say, you know, like, who, who do you think I am that I would, you know, stick around with this guy? Or, mm. uh, you know, like, what, when do I get the chance to speak up on this issue? Mm. You know, it's just these simple character prompts and techniques where basically I was being hard on myself as a writer so that I don't make my characters do exactly what I want. Because once I'm doing that, they're just flat and they're mm. kind of... They're just puppets, you know? Mm-hmm. And I get to keep my message and my beliefs intact. Where really the best writing, you should be questioning yourself and your beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, turning mm-hmm. things kind of up and down and looking underneath stuff. And you might still end up in the same place, but your book might explore, you know, that multiplicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Get so- it, girl. <laughs> so we're already running long um and i don't want to take up too much of belisha's time but something i was hoping we could talk about as a group is empathy 
Um, yes. That's something. Uh, so first, let me just give you guys context. So f- when the terrorist attack happened in Nairobi in January, um, and the New York Times decided that they were going to publish an image of, <sighs> you know, some Kenyan, you know, dead bodies. Um, mm. That was something that has stayed in my mind and I wanted us to talk about it, but still didn't know the context and when and where. Um, and then I came across an article written by Hannah Georgis for the Atlantic about the coverage of the plane crash, the plane that mm-hmm. was going in March, the plane that was traveling from Addis Ababa to Nairobi um, and how the way it was covered by the West didn't, it, it wasn't covered in a way that empathized with the African passengers who died. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this past week, I came across another article that talks about the, about empathy and how there's so much responsibility and literature to cultivate empathy in the readers. And the author of that article, Namwali Serpel, um, so I think all these things were kind of swirling in my head and I was hoping we could talk about that, about like how there's this responsibility on art and literature, on writers to like write, essentially to create work that elicits empathy and write about marginalized people so that, you know, other people can read it and empathize with them. But then we also see what's happening in the world and how things are being done without empathy towards Africans, but then also like, is that, is that even possible? So that was something that was in the, the essay, the banality of empathy by Namwali Serpo about, is that even possible? Is that even a good thing to ask of writers? And so, yeah, there's just a lot of things that were swirling in my head that I was hoping we could talk about. I mean, I can definitely speak to that. I can't speak to the article, although I've completely I'm completely aware of what it is. Namali Serpao's book just came out, The Old Drift. Mm-hmm. And um The what? And it's The Old Drift. It's a it's a book out of Zambia. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's doing really well. I haven't read it yet and I haven't read this article, though I've read other pieces of her. I love her work. She she got the Kane Prize some years back for a story called Yeah, twenty fifteen. Yeah, twenty fifteen. I love that story. Um Empathy, I think is generally well serving, like in terms of like, we need to consider others. Um, I'm a big proponent of putting ourselves in other people's shoes. Since I write a lot about othering and objectification, it's kind of implicit. It's an implicit challenge for me. I have to do it. Otherwise I do a disservice to someone. It's still impossible probably to never do a disservice to someone, but you have to try it. However, I'm kind of, understanding of an, the idea that empathy often ends up in the hands of the people with the dominant gaze. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, white people, please have empathy towards black folks. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. white please have empathy about, you know, African, the African, you know, complex or the African identity or way of being. And that kind of brings in a superiority complex inherent with that because what you're saying is you're in a better place you're privileged somehow and you have the privilege of perspective Mm. and and the reverse isn't true so i think if we're all being you know like objective and if we're all trying to 
exercise empathy in our daily life, it's kind of like a, it's just a strong religious value anyway, or a great spiritual value. Hmm. But I think in terms of the weight on literature or on the weight on the publication kind of industry, it often comes from this place of superiority, unfortunately. It doesn't mean do away with empathy, because what do we have if we do? Uh Mm -hmm. What what if we have callousness, which we've had before? You know, empathy, this this language of empathy that comes up so much might be an overcorrection or a correction of that extreme white gaze Mm -hmm. and white lens or Western lens that used to just apply by default. Mm. And now we're saying do better. So I don't know if that really answers at all your question, but that's kind of some of where I, I stand from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I first read the piece by Namwali, The Banality of Empathy, I was like, wait, are you saying that we should not be empathetic? Are you saying that, you know, um, we shouldn't cultivate empathy? But then... Like she was just, she just started dropping some gems and I was snapping my fingers in my head. <laughs> and her argument in this, in this essay is that like empathy again is focused on kind of like how you said it is kind of, um, like tourism, you know, hmm. um, you're just like, like voyeurism low key kind yeah. of, um, is not really, it's not really heart heartfelt. It's not really active. It's right. kind of just like passively mm-hmm. experiencing, like being a body, like yeah. Because mm-hmm. even if you were a body snatcher, you were you're like your your mind is, is in somebody else's body. But this one, you're just like a fly on someone's shoulder. I don't know yeah. how to describe it. Um, and she says she says this one about um the empathy. This this is a quote. The empathy model of art can bleed too easily into the relishing of suffering mm-hmm. by those who are safe from it. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a gateway drug to white saviorism with its familiar blend of propaganda, por- pornography, and paternalism. It's an emotionally, it's an emotional palliative that distracts us from real inequities on the page and on screen to say nothing of our actual lives. And it has imposed upon readers and viewers the idea that they can they can and ought to use art to inhabit others, ex- especially the marginalized. And when she was writing all of these things, I just remember, um, you know, kind of the feel good, um, white savior movies that Hollywood likes mm-hmm. nowadays, like Green Book, Crash, you know, all these hidden movies figures. that make white people, yeah, lo- yeah, hidden figures too. As much as I love hidden figures, like, yeah, I love yeah. It. yeah. um, um, that just make white people be like, oh, people hard is so bad, hard back in the day. Oh, so this racist white man can like transform. And like, do you know, so, so mm. it's always from their own gaze. It's always like, like the vehicle for empathy is, is the black experience, but mm-hmm. the end recipient of mm. the empathy yeah. ends up being their fellow white person. Yeah. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. The end, mm-hmm. the end, um, yeah. So it's like, this 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 article really made me think and and it's like okay you watch a movie like that you feel the feels mm-hmm. and there's another phrase there's another sentence sorry i, I feel like i'm dominating this conversation but no, like please. um there's another sentence that goes like you know 
um, it should not be a really art shouldn't be a release valve. Let me find it. Okay, yeah, art should not be a release valve, but a combustion engine. Hmm. You know, like it shouldn't make you feel like yes, feel feelings and all of that, but it shouldn't be like ah, I feel all these feelings now. I'm like purged of these feelings. Now I can go do something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be like I feel these feelings. I want to do something. Like I want to. I want yes. to act on these feelings. I want to change something. I mm-hmm. want. I'm moved. I'm. I'm. I'm motivated. Type situation. But usually, this empathy is like, oh, oh, that's so bad, and you move on with your life. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that goes back to the idea of contemplation of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Versus action. Like that's why mm-hmm. I. I. I try to speak to writing as not an action, even though it's of course full of work. You put a lot of hours into it, but it's easy to think you've written something. So you've done something. And the two of them, they have to be separate. We have so much to do to improve the lives of our lives and the lives of people we care about. And Mm. it's easy to sit on a podium and write a book or an article or whatever and you know, and generally from a place of comfort and privilege, and then think you've acted because you've mm. depicted, mm. depicted, mm-hmm. you know. So there's wow. something also in empathy where I sometimes feel people espouse empathy because they want to shirk off the responsibility of doing mm. the work mm-hmm. to reconcile, you know, problems, separate selves, you know, your racist mm-hmm. self versus your open-minded self. Like, do the work. Don't just mm-hmm. feel empathy today at 4 or 5 p.m. And then you can walk away from your, you know what I mean? Like from the mm-hmm. challenge ahead. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's my distrust of empathy a little bit, although I do think it's essential, you know, to understanding one another and to understanding the, you know, the characters we write. It also is, it, it gets us away from representation. If we don't just stay too, too much in that empathy lane, then we won't fall under the trap of, oh, I get to represent this part of the world or I get to, no, no. You're telling a story, you know, you're impartial for some of it, some of it you're biased, Mm -hmm. you know, tell tell the story, depict, but also, you know, in the rest of your day, like, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) And I think, sorry, I have a lot to say about this. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we talk about it. Yeah, so like another thing she says, another distinction she makes in that in that essay is that there's representative thinking and um there is there's like okay, so there's representative thinking and emotional empathy. Mm-hmm. And she and she goes, one trains one's imagination to go visiting. This is a way of relating to others and it's not just tourism. No, is it total occupation? Um, there's no assimilation of self and other. Rather, you make an active, imaginative effort mm-hmm. to travel outside of your circumstance and to stay a while mm-hmm. when you're welcome. So it's like, you know, like going back to how the empathy is just like, oh, oh, that's so sad. Like, you know, type feeling instead of, okay, actively, okay, you know, how. So she makes a case for not like, imagining you are that person but instead imagine you are yourself but in that person's circumstance Mm. you know how would how that how that shape you how does that affect you you being yourself 
like mm-hmm. in that circumstance in these like not not so great circumstances or great circumstances like how would your life change how would you as a person change yeah um, but if uh, i know this is probably not that important but isn't that the difference between um like sympathy and empathy because i feel like we're almost interchanging the two mm. right Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like sympathy is the oh, hey, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel bad for you, but then empathy yeah. is you then putting yourself in that person's shoes and being able to feel those emotions. But then you said, like you said, you know, it's not just the feeling; it's the action afterwards. But mm-hmm. just, yeah, I think maybe like now as language is yeah. evolving, I feel like now empathy has kind of started. Like uh, empathy as we talk about it or how, mm-hmm. as it's depicted has now started shifting towards sympathy. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Like, like yeah. the lines have become more blurred mm-hmm. and the, the, um, decisive action of empathy, the like, mm-hmm. is kind of watered down now. So right. yeah, I, I, I agree but with I, you that. I, now, I don't think that sympathy or empathy necessarily have to come with action. I was gonna exactly say, that was something yeah. that you brought up in yeah. the essay too. Yeah. Is the, yeah. That empathy I mean, is not necessarily a prerequisite for doing the right thing. Like yeah. she, mm-hmm. but like, and I think if you were saying this, like the first time or when I started reading the essay, I was like, okay, where is she going with this? Where is she going with this? <laughs> <laughs> and then boom, she starts like bringing up these gems. And one thing that she brought up is that like in this call for like reading broadly so that we can empathize, there's also this increase of like gazing upon suffering as a way Mm -hmm. of of increasing empathy and that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons in the clip i think it was the wnyc studios clip that i shared the photojournalist was like they were saying like oh this is an extreme situation so you know maybe the new york times felt like it had to publish this extreme photo to like shock people into like Mm -hmm. sympathizing and it's like what does it say about us if like you have to people yeah (laughs) the most Mm -hmm. extreme you know you know essentially essentially um what's the word like trotting out like this image and saying like hey this mm-hmm. is a really bad situation look at these bodies like you must feel mm-hmm. something but yeah. us feeling something doesn't mean that like you know how many people then got up and then you know said okay i'm going to and yeah. i'm going to do something mm-hmm. or looked at another black person differently or another african differently like did you i i remember meeting a journalist who used to work for the new york times african-american journalist new york times the financial times and something else and now she focuses on writing nonfiction. i met her at a residency and it was soon after um some tragedy where like of course black bodies were just Many, many, many journalists oh, like okay, her have tried to speak truth to power in these circles and tell their editors, you know, this can't go on or can we run this other image? And the editors have told them in no uncertain terms that no, we can't because the only kind of readership, the only kind of interest we'll get. Now, today that means clicks and baits, you know, click baits, but mm-hmm. back in the day it meant selling papers. The only way we'll get readership if it comes to black tragedy is if it is tragedy and visual. So, you know, now there's this association between black and death and black and trauma and black and tragedy and black and... And again, going back to pandering, you know, it becomes Mm -hmm. this problematic cycle. And people, I don't know, I don't think it speaks to who we are as humans. I think it speaks to a selling model 
It's how it's mm-hmm. how people sell magazines. So yes, of course, behind those magazines are human beings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and in front of those magazines are consumption consumptive human beings who are buying. But that's why empathy can be false because it's that white person who's not picking up that newspaper when it's a smiling black face, you know, talking about some successful moment or whatever. But it's picking it up when it's dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Right? It's and and so empathy starts to ring false and it, it, it lives very close to sympathy in that in that model, in that mm-hmm. capitalistic model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you know the even I, I get what you're saying, but even that, it's like, that also speaks to who we are, right? Like, it's a selling model, but that's because... It of, works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, it's not based on... It's not baseless. It's based on the human beings that we have become. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. There, um, and, and just for people who are, you know, listening to the episode and thinking, like, do I have to be empathetic about every single thing? And this is overwhelming. Um, I think just being mindful, literally, a, a good example that she, she gave in the article was, like, how people can watch these black football players on the field every day, you know, mm-hmm. being ramming to the ground. And they're, like, they feel that pain and they're empathetic about that situation in that moment. But, like, do you actually really care about the violence that they're going to face when they leave the field, you know? (laughs) And so it's just in, like, the very practical everyday things and just being aware and mindful and, like, intentional about, like, okay, this is how I feel in this moment. But does that feeling translate to, like, the next two seconds? And and if it doesn't, then then how do you, you know, intentionally, like, call yourself out and then be a better person? And I think this speaks to, like, when we talk about empathy... Like, how do I say this? Like, addressing things in a balanced way because it's not just like, how do I say this? Because like in the art essay that Hannah Georgis wrote, she mentioned that there also has to be this acknowledgement of like African humanity and the forces that are at play to erode it in the public consciousness. So it's mm. one thing is like advocating for people to read to read more so that they increase the empathy or whatever. But it's also another thing to then balance that by saying, this is, these are the other things at play. It's not just you reading. Mm. Like, I don't know how to say it. Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's also even an article that came out, I think yesterday or today called, it was on uh, NPR, very short, but called, so does American TV ever mention Africa? And the short answer being not really, right? So we mm-hmm. talked about how, you know, Africa is mostly invisible to American television viewers. Now that's America. That's an American problem, but no. not, really, <laughs> not really, you know, with, with the impact that they can have on cultural, you know, like content. So there's that, you know, and I think where empathy gets tricky is empathy is supposed to be defined, not just as understanding the feelings of another, but sharing the feelings of another, and that can be good if it's truthful, but I think it can be smug when you don't really share the feelings of the other, but you want to have the moral you know, mm. superiority of saying, or the moral comfortableness of saying, oh, I, I totally understand you. I share your feelings. Do you really share my feelings? <laughs> like, do you really, you know, not just with sensitivity, like, but with full awareness? No, not necessarily. So it becomes this you know, shortcut for I can do this or I can mm. read this or I can consume this yeah. or I can judge this because I have, at the end of the day, empathy. It's like a trump card, you know? It's like it trumps um, everything. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like Sorry, as, and those one... as a as to close the conversation, to shut down the conversation. Sorry, fair. So yeah, there was one other line in the essay that goes um like geared towards political justice rather than moral feeling. And I just keep coming back to like justice. Remember when we had Keguro on the podcast and he was like, you know, your politics, like, are you operating from a place of justice and care for each other? And, you know, mm. like, when we are feeling empathetic or when we are mm. directed towards empathy or whatever, like, let's dig deeper and, like, inter- interrogate those feelings and be like, okay, is this, like, surface-level moral yeah. feeling? Or am I, like, being moved towards justice? Am I being moved towards, like, caring for this situation or mm. this person in this situation or am I just like you know feeling mm-hmm. feeling for my feeling you know wow. feeling That's to like deep. reflect to show that I'm still human you know that's you know I have mm. a heart you know yeah that's actually a great takeaway like interrogating those those feelings um and just because we're running long does anybody have any last questions last thoughts before I ask Galicia a final question. Oh, oh girl. Mm. <laughs> so just to wrap up, um, Belasia, I was wondering what gives you hope as a writer? Like, what do you, you know, because I know like, you know, as you're thinking about it, just like the art and practice of writing. Yeah, there's so much that you're facing, like frustrations, like with how the novel's coming, other things that at play, like economics, politics, life, and everything going on. I just wonder, like, what, yeah, what, is there something that gives you hope as a writer to keep going um, that you can share with us? Honestly, it's kind of something that I might, I alluded to earlier, and it's, and it's kind of, um, like this very warm initial support, like pre-completion, you know, like this, Mm. my work is not really out there like that. You know, you can't, you, if you look me up, you might find, you'll find definitely a trail that indicates I'm a writer, but you're not going to find my work, you know, out there yet. Mm. And it does give me hope to know that we are trying to create spaces that can look out not just for established writers to stay established, but for emerging writers to actually emerge. Mm. Uh, I think that that's something it gives me hope in because I've seen it in action mm. and it gives me hope because the more of us step up to the plate and enter these spaces, the more of us are available 10 years down the road, five years down the road, 20 years down the road to open doors for other people, hopefully faster and more easily than they were open for us. Hmm. That, that gives me hope. I don't want to tell one story and then, you know, look around and then feel that I need to tell another story that isn't mine to tell. I know that there are people hmm. who have stories to tell just like I do. And it yeah. does give me hope when someone paves the way or makes the path easier for me, it gives me hope because I hope to kind of return the favor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Let us know when that book is out, babe. Like, we, we need to we need to read it. NYC Book Club. Mm-hmm. Book Club. Um, so just to actually wrap up the episode, we haven't done this in a minute, and I feel like this episode is quite a literature 
uh, heavy episode. I don't know if yes. y'all are reading anything that you want to talk about and you want to share and let I <laughs> so, Oh my any, god. Whoever feels led by the spirits. I am led. I am oh, led. Wow. Okay. Very led. <laughs> so, I just finished reading Bad Blood oh. uh, by, by John Carrier. I don't know. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but it is about the Theranos scam. And yes. yo, yo, yeah. yo, <laughs> bro. I like. Oh, that's a perfect it is, title. <laughs> it is a mind blowing account of mm. like white privilege, delusion of grandeur, you know, <laughs> narcissism, like. Enabled by sickle fancy and greed, it's mm. a lot. Mm. So juicy, and it's just like <laughs> this woman was literally like, I don't, I don't know. If she, you know, there's another thing. Like, it's trying. I don't. It's kind of hard to distill whether she was like. She was obviously terrible and very, but it's like okay, well, is she terrible because she really had these delusions, or is she just a fucking scammer, oh or, and doesn't matter, you know? But it's very it's good. Hush. It's mm. a it's a very good piece of investigative journalism. Like this guy painted, he really assembled his timeline that that helped you see how toxic the work culture there was and how she mm. like like yeah. And when you think about it, like she really masterminded. Like she siloed departments that were supposed to be working together to be building this thing. She was mm. very paranoid about security and leaks. And it's like, girl, this shit don't work. Why are you fucking paranoid about shit that doesn't work? You know? Mm. Um, but yeah, I yeah, highly recommend it. I read it in like, I'm usually slow with nonfiction, but he wrote it, like he reads like a fiction, like a, you know, thriller book. And mm. um, yeah, I recommend. So okay. good. I literally downloaded the audio book so that I could listen to that because I ah. heard it's also great on audio. Yeah. Do it. But did she have good intentions initially or was she just out there Um, for them? No, that's another thing that they kind of tried to investigate. Maybe, but like her main motivation, honestly and truly, seems to be to be the next Steve Jobs. That was like literally how, like, I feel. Like, Mm. you know, like to change the world and have like some revolutionary product. Um, Mm. I think that was her key motivation. She claims that her key motivation is to save lives, you know, to make people make blood testing easier and um, cheaper and quicker and whatever, whatever, whatever. But if those were your th- if those were your true motivations, once you actually do the work of making that your, sh- like, the in- invention happen, but, like, she, yeah, so I, I, I don't think so. I think her motivation <laughs> was... Like, <laughs> I think no. <laughs> <laughs> I think her motivation was wealth and, like, power. Same. Mm. Okay. Honestly. Wow. Okay, who else? <laughs> I, I know that it. was just a juicy, juicy. It's so good. I haven't written down. Like I keep meaning to read it. Too. Maybe I should read it so we can talk about it next next time we come. Wow, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I'm. I'm not reading anything right now, guys. Sorry. Yeah, because yeah, school. Days. School is in session. <laughs> <laughs> Science <ahead>. prevails. <laughs> yeah, well, I can uh, share one. This is Belisha. 
I can share something I read. I won't go into detail. I'll just recommend it. Um, it's a book that called Golden Child by mm. Claire Adam. I don't know if anybody heard about this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's set in Trinidad and Tobago. It's a very quick read. Um, it's about a family that's kind of like faced with some kind of, with a family with, I think, twin boys or two brothers. And like there's a bit of a, an, you know, a dramatic thing that entails and that ensues rather. And it's such a simple plot really, but I enjoyed it for its description of the setting. I enjoyed it for the family dynamics. I kind of wanted a little bit more out of the, the wife character. It was really focused on the husband, but Mm. um, once in a while, I read so many women centered books that once in a while it's like, okay, I, I, you know, (laughs) I'll release you. (laughs) But but it was it was really good. I wonder how many people would enjoy it as much as I did. Mm, because of you, What's it called again? actually the Golden Child. Okay, and who's it by? It's by Claire Adam, A D A M, this Trini writer. Mm. It was yeah. really good. It was lyrical, but not but not so much so that you lose the thread of like the plot and stuff. Yeah. Because of you, Belize, I placed the hold on it at the library. So I'm like number, I'm like 104 on the list. <laughs> I think I have some hope because there's like 20 copies at the library. So I'm hoping it'll move quickly. If not, I might just have to break my book buying ban, maybe. Um, yeah, but yeah, guys, I'm so proud of myself. Three months and I haven't bought a book. So yay, wow. go me. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so I am reading. I started this book. Since we're talking about writing, this feels very perfect. Um, I'm reading Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And I started reading it late last year and kind of got out of it. And I just started rereading it again. And it's just like... The way she writes, she's she actually has a wicked sense of humor, but also also she's like a little bit woo woo. Um, so there's some things about like she talks about her experiences, but each chapter is broken up into like practical things to do to like practical ways to think about writing and practical things to do to like move your writing forward. And so one of them, like a few of them, are about writing short assignments, like doing something small. Um, to get yourself to start writing. And then she talks about how characters develop like a Polaroid. Like in the beginning, it seems really fuzzy. And then as you... And it's funny because Velija, when you were talking about interrogating the character, like it just reminded me of some of the things she has suggested about like what would the character do as opposed to like what would you do. Um, And so there's just like a lot in there about writing and about false starts and like you know sometimes you start writing and like what you wrote as the first paragraph is not necessarily going to be the first paragraph maybe the real beginning happens like two pages in and then yeah she just talks about writing and revising and it's really good there's some of it that I don't care for that I don't believe (laughs) in but there's a lot of good I think that I'm like getting from it to like help me with writing so yeah bird by bird by animal Oh. Synced. Oh. All right. 
I can I can go next. Um, so this isn't anything new. I've been reading this book for months, and I'll probably keep reading it for the next couple of <laughs> years. The end I, of the I, year. <laughs> <laughs> no, like it's a really long book. I don't know how or why I started. Okay, it's called um, it's called Practical Theology. Um, uh, yeah, it it has like really short chapters on different. It has different questions that lots of people would have about like faith and christianity and it's like, it? easy to read what was it by is it by c.s lewis no it's by peter Kreeft, i think yeah i don't think i don't know if it's anybody special but yeah it's it's really good it's very digestible um like different topics like you know reason over will or reason over emotions and objective truth just all these different questions that people always argue about on twitter and like in different platforms um very easy to understand and explain to others and i find it like i usually read it um during during mass so i so mass here is in french so during the homily when i don't know what the priest is saying i just open it up and <laughs> read like a chapter oh, wow <laughs> i cannot come and kill myself please I, I i i pay attention during the rest of the mass but the homily i just i can't i cannot be able to um but yeah no it's good um yeah, and it's really long. Yeah. It's like a million pages. So I just keep trying to make progress each Sunday. Yeah. So Practical Theology by who? By Peter Kreeft. Um, and it, it has a lot of um, right, reference to Thomas Aquinas, Augustine. And yeah, a lot of these like philosophers and theolo- theologians. But it's really good. Mm. Nice. Well, uh, Anna, yeah, since you didn't say, <laughs> read anything. Wow. Wow. <laughs> no, Drag just, me. I'm not, I'm, no, Shame I, Guys, you didn't even let me land. <laughs> let this plane land. I was going to say, okay. since you didn't read anything, I mm. feel like this is your opportunity to just share one thing, since it's not a book, so that you can contribute to the conversation. Wow. I know, we don't want to leave you out. See, I'm even, I'm being no. considerate. I'm giving you a uh, chance to just Thank you for something. being empathetic to the situation. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, y'all, I'm literally in the home stretch of this degree. So right wow. now, I'm just Doctor. like, girl, you got this. <laughs> y'all, I'm eating, breathing, dreaming science. Like, um, but I mean, in the midst of that, though, what am I listening to? Um, I've been listening to a lot of PJ Morton. By the way, um, he is just fantastic. Oh, my God. He's from New Orleans. Um, He actually won, I think, a Grammy with Yeba for covering, um, what's it called? How Deep Is Your Love? Um, But anyways, he's a fantastic, fantastic musician. So I encourage you to listen to it. I'm also listening to his Christmas album, even though we are in March. Um, I I just feel like Christmas music is so great. Y'all can judge. I feel like it's so great and it's unfair for it to only be listened to during one month. There are two types of people in this life. (laughs) Christmas music and those who don't. (laughs) So yeah, I I love PJ Morton. Um, He's amazing. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being on this episode. Thank you to Clarice Belaja Saidi for being with us and gracing us with her presence and her her brilliant mind. Guys, where can people find you? Oh, wow. Um, right. So I'm on Twitter most of the time. Right now for Lent, I'm not really on, but I'm on Twitter um at free Belasia, so B A L E J A. 
And I'm on Instagram, I believe, as Clarice Belasia. I'm sometimes on Facebook, but not really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, find me. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, ladies, for a robust conversation. That's what we're right. paid for. JK. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye. bye. bye.